0: Hi, this is Matt Finch of Frog God Games, and you're listening to Save
1: for Half. Welcome to the Save for Path podcast, where we'll talk about old school games and modern games inspire by. Them. Welcome to episode 9 of the Save for Half podcast. I am DM Liz, taking over for DM Mike on this occasion, and perhaps I will let him have the show back next time, but we'll see. And joining me today are DM Corbett. Hello, hello. Also joining us today is DM Jim.
2: Greetings, programs.
1: And a special guest, DM Jeff. Hello, everyone. Jeff, I'm given to understand that you are an expert in the game that we are going to be covering today, which is Fossa's version of Star Trek The Role Playing Game.
3: Uh, well, Corbett says I'm an expert, therefore I am indeed an expert. This game all got right. me through sixth grade. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if it's good enough for Corbett, it's good enough for me. Well, it's been a while since we've all gotten together to record. I think the last time corbett and mike and i did an episode was shortly before the christmas holidays we covered super babes and we also had the interview with tim cask so it's been a while since we've done anything together so what have you all been doing over the holidays gaming related corbett
0: haha
2: hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. she picked you <laughs>
0: I feel like I've been avoiding gaming, though it feels just so busy that I haven't had a chance. Every time a game pops up, I've actually had games locally pop up and they'll invite me and I can't make it because I'm always busy doing something. So I have been avoiding gaming.
1: (laughs) Well, I kind of know what you mean with the holidays and everything. It's been really hard for our local group to get a weekend where everybody is available to game. And as a matter of fact, they had a game today while I was... Getting Mike from Tyler and bringing him back home, so we missed that one. So, well, what about you, Jeff? Do you guys have any local regular games that you're a part of?
3: Well, actually, yeah, we have our gaming club, the the R D G, the Royal Dragoon Guards, and we meet on the first and third Saturdays. And we squeezed our meetings in with the holidays, so we've had some dice rolling going on, uh, Star Wars, Mech Warrior, and a little bit of our Talsorian's Dream Park, which is an obscure but unappreciated
2: gem. So that's cool. what we've been up to. That was. A good All
1: one. right. Nice. <laughs> and what about you, Jim? What have you been up to? Uh, what it's been about a long me? time since you've been on the show.
2: <laughs> I am so lame that my group scheduled a DCC New Year's Eve game, and I had to back out and cancel. Because I was at home doing work. Haha, ha, I'm not so the only I, one. Yeah, <laughs> if, it, if it makes you feel better, but it, it's for a good cause. Besides my normal game shenanigans responsibilities, i have started work on something in the background. I'm writing a new game. <laughs> the, the first game's not quite on bookstore shelves for another month or two, and I'm working on the the next one. And I can't really <laughs> shouldn't bring it up because I can't talk about it. But uh, I think when it gets announced, everybody will be super excited.
1: Well, I'm pretty excited just with that little teaser. I know. So when will the official announcement happen about this.
2: Oh, see. <laughs> this is what happens when you start. Okay, I can't talk about it, but what's... Soon. What's the next con we're all going to be at? Probably that one.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, the next con I'm going to be at is probably not going to be till North Texas, but I know a lot of you guys are going to be at Gary Con. so... <laughs>
2: you missed your calling in investigative journalism. You're really good at that.
1: Wow. <laughs> Ha ha (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, whatever the announcement is, and whenever it happens, I am going to be very excited to find out more. Mm. Oh, well, as far as Mike and I go, like I mentioned, it was really hard for us to get together with our group over the months of December and January. I mean, we did manage to get a couple of game sessions in, but there was so much going on. There was always at least one or two people who were not going to be able to to make a certain day because of seeing family, parties, things like that. And it's like ah! But hopefully, knock on wood, things are calming down again and we'll be able to do some more regular gaming. I know Mike's been gone out of state for about a little over a month now and normally he runs a victorious game once a month and we didn't have our January game and I don't even remember if we had a December game. Seems like a really long time. Anyway. (laughs) It's a blur. So What have we been doing in gaming over the holidays? Not a whole lot. (laughs) So, Jeff, you win. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff wins. (laughs)
3: Well, I I realize I forgot to mention where I just got back from yesterday. So I'll just keep that to myself then. (laughs) 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 <laughs> we went on an event we call Gulf Deployment, which is where we all get on a cruise ship and game for a week. But but I'm back from that now. Oh,
1: that's super cool. That sounds awesome.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's just something we started doing. We, we take all our RPGs with us and do the food thing and the booze thing and the shows. And then between all that, we grab tables and game. It's a lot of fun.
1: That sounds super awesome. I think everyone should do this. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, we're going again in
2: 2020. Y'all come on. Well, I'll send the invite out. Come on with us. I'm sitting here thinking, that's the kind of Gulf deployment I can get behind.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, you definitely win the what have we been doing in gaming section for this episode. Sorry, (laughs) Scott. That all by itself wins. Okay. Well, before we start in on talking about the FASO Star Trek role-playing game, let us take a brief break for these incredibly important words from our sponsors.
2: a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts they came. The Grognard files a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served.
0: So, you wanted to learn a new language, but something keeps getting in the way. Nook, nook. I'm Michael Doran. I think it's time you discovered Rosetta Stone. Available in over 30 languages, and now for the first time, Klingon. Let's see what Klingon can do for you.
3: With Rosetta Stone's new Klingon language program, I can talk to my son and feel like I'm not missing out.
0: But Chuck ate Dad! Gosh! Little scamp. Speaking Klingon is a great way to make new friends.
3: I've tried other methods, but this is the only one that really worked for me. Now my friends and I can speak to each other in Klingon.
0: The Klingon language is fun. Thank you, Rosetta Stone. Klingon is a romance language.
1: Thanks, Rosetta
2: Stone.
0: Today is a good day to learn Klingon. Succeed, or your money back. Order now.
3: Comply. Rosetta Stone is not responsible for any war begun or ended while speaking Klingon. on. Rosetta Stone system can be yours for the low price of $269.99. Use promo code Frankie and save 10%. Offer not valid
1: on Earth. And we are back. As you have no doubt realized from my rambling on already, this episode we're talking about Star Trek The Role Playing Game from FASA. And if I am understanding this correctly, Foss's version was the first official version of Star Trek in a role-playing game format. I mean, I know Heritage and Game Science did some minis and stuff, but I don't really know how official they were as far as Paramount was concerned or anything like that. Although I think it was before that the before the license the, went over.
3: The license that I believe Heritage used, or Game Science, was through Franz Joseph Designs, the same as Starfleet Battles. At the time when uh, Paramount basically thought Star Trek was dead, they granted an unprecedented license without an expiration date to Franz Joseph. (sighs) (laughs) So that that black technical manual was under a license that didn't expire. So you have Starfleet Battles sublicensed under that license, and Paramount can't really, or actually now CBS, can't really do anything about it. So Prime Directive is still a thing. Starfleet Battles is still a thing. They can never show Next Generation. They can never show Discovery or Voyager or anything like that, but they can keep printing their slightly off Star Trek games.
1: So original series is it for them.
2: That sounds like the licensing shenanigans Uncle Duke would. Get up to a Heritage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for people who like their
3: Star Trek with the dash of Tom Clancy, and sometimes I am one of those people, the universe they put together for Starfleet battles can be a lot of fun. I wasn't as keen on their battle system, though. Oh, no. Yeah. You need a slide rule and a tax form.
0: The Save
2: for Half Top 5 In 5, 4,
1: All right, well, our usual format, Jeff, is you probably know is we normally do a top five going around the various hosts after we are done with that then we've got a what makes the save and what doesn't make the save since you are the guest i will not make you go first unless you want to
2: I'm, either way i'm i'm easy yeah. <laughs> i think jeff should just keep talking because he already cleared out one of my top fives <laughs> oh, no, Before we started Already? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, generous helpings from Fran Joseph's The Starfleet Technical Manual are in this game. Don't, oh, all right, that one's gone. <laughs> ah, sorry. <laughs> no apology necessary. Our, our purpose here is to inform listeners, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, I put together like 12 things to talk about, and I'm desperately hoping that I will be able to get five individual things that no one else covers out of them, but I may be doomed to failure on this. (laughs) Okay, well, since I called on Corbett first on what did we do in gaming, I will Uh continue that trend, and Corbett, what's your number five? Oh, that's
0: not fair. It's the first time back (gasps) in a year for Jim. (laughs) No, no, I think it's
2: super fair. (laughs)
0: Okay, number five. Let's see. I got my list, my list. Oh, one of the things I went back and re-looked through the whole books. There's three books in the series. Sorry, I should probably go over the basics of it. There are three books in the initial setup. Yeah, I probably
1: should have done that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: The Cadet's Orientation Sourcebook, which is basically like if you've never heard of Star Trek It sums up everything in it. What a ship is and who's a captain and things like that The Starfleet Officer's Manual, which is basically the player's handbook, how to make a character, generally how the rules work And the Games Operations Manual, which is the GM's Guide It is a D10 slash percentile based system using strength, endurance, dexterity, intellect, luck, charisma, and psionic Which is a stat But that's more on that later. But okay, one of the first quick things I thought was pretty funny. I had forgotten this from a long time back, but Galacta is the common language in uh, the original Star Trek game. Everybody speaks Galacta. That's why everybody speaks the same language. And that's why the Klingons can speak Klingon and what have you and what have you. But nobody has a universal translator stuck in their head because a universal translator looks like a thermos. (laughs) That was it. I just thought it was funny.
1: All right. And DM Jim, what about you?
2: I've got my list here in front of me, but I'm going to juggle them so (laughs) that I don't get something stolen. Um, I, I bought this back in the day, and I have vague recollections of the first edition, which I think was just a book. And then I bought the box set that Corbett just reviewed. Besides being a Star Trek fan who would just buy anything that had Star Trek on it, the number one reason I bought the box set was the cover art. Classic triad of Kirk McCoy Spock with the ship flying over done by an artist who back in the day I adored named, we just knew her as Rowena I think her whole name is Rowena Morrill. I'd forgotten about her until I did the research this episode and then I remembered oh my god, you know, she was like the female Boris Valheia. We adored her back in the day because uh, she was on like, she did the covers for H.P. Lovecraft paperbacks and crap tons of fantasy novels and just see, especially for 1982-83, that's really good box art. It looks like a professional product on the outside.
1: If Mike were here, he would probably point out that um, Rowena, like him, is from Mississippi. (laughs) Probably one of the best things Mississippi ever created. (laughs) Yeah, she was awfully cool.
2: Just super talented artist and a redhead, so there you go. (laughs) She she was my celebrity female painter crush right behind Darlene.
1: And DM Jeff.
3: Um, My number five is how it presented the pre-Next Generation Star Trek universe. I mean, at this point, when I first picked the game up, this was it. This and books were all we really had and it filled in so many of the little blanks you know it gave you background on all the races even the ones from the cartoon yep. mm-hmm. you know the catians were in there yep. the Edoans were in there and they had all these wonderful source books about the Orions and about the Klingons and about the Romulans that gave you all this cultural background you wouldn't otherwise have gotten I love the way they built it up it was just very very cool okay. I knew we were going
2: to get to the Klingons sooner or later I mean their <laughs> their Klingon backgrounds in some ways are better than what we ended up with yeah. in canon
1: Read. well My number five is the officer's manual or quote-unquote player's guide. Like a lot of games back during that time, it has the ubiquitous what is a role-playing game intro, which almost every single gaming booklet or supplement or whatever seemed like it was almost mandatory to have. What is a role-playing game? You know, And one of the things that I kind of liked about that, but I don't think they went far enough into it, they compare the players of a role-playing game to actors in a play, talking about, well, actors have lines to learn, and they da-da-da-da-da, but, you know, he has the player, you know, you're making this up as you go along. And it's like they never actually make the direct link between role-playing and improv, but I think that would have been a perfect analogy if they had taken the the actor analogy a little bit further rather than just well, actors have lines memorized and here, you know, as a player, you're just, you know, freeform. It's like, well, improv is free form. You could have gone in that direction too. But I did like how they tried to give you an analogy that you would probably understand as opposed to a lot of games that just said, Well, it's like, you know, let's pretend, only, you know, you're an adult now. It's like, eh, you know, <laughs> you could probably sell that a little better by some other analogy than let's pretend.
0: Actually, I actually love that comparison some of the TV show as well which is very important it kind of ties the whole world in I think Jim did you have something to say I didn't mean to cut you off
2: well I think that's an interesting perspective that Liz just brought to things and what I was thinking in my head was well naturally Liz is taking acting classes so yeah that's
1: probably what made me think of of it too
0: well that was just one of my takeaways from the well I guess I can do that as my number four Uh, one of my takeaways and I'm pretty sure they talked about it in the I think it was the game master's guide yeah they talk about um, you can run it as a single episode you can run it as like a long campaign I've run long campaigns with it I've run single episodes I've done a lot more single episode, like, one hits, and that's been kind of my fun moments, as people can make a character, jump in, play it, and like, cool, that was great, and then make another character and do a whole different story. I think that was kind of my first breakaway in gaming, when I realized a game doesn't have to be this campaign that never, ever ends. It can be a story that's just told, which uh, mm-hmm. was a learning experience for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, although, you know, when I first got into role playing, it didn't occur to me to have grand campaigns at first. Everything that I did at the beginning was just kind of episodic stuff, because huh. I was learning as I went, and I didn't have an established group to initially learn from. So it's like, uh, okay, this time, we're all going down into the dungeon to do this. yeah. And then, so I kind of went at it from the opposite direction. But huh. yeah, it, it took a while for me to figure out, You can do something different than what you are doing right now.
2: I actually think that's very interesting light to shine on this because back concurrent with when this game came out was when D&D was just getting past the... I mean, D&D, when it came out, was very focused on you're just doing the dungeon. And all the the village that you call home and the wilderness are sort of abstracted to higher levels, and the focus is on the dungeon. And this game is very focused on the landing party. Mm -hmm. Show up at the planet, land on the planet, go explore the planet, have your adventure there, as opposed to the larger Star Trek over the the subsequent role-playing games embrace. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Totally. Well, I think that's a good segue for your number four, Jim.
2: Uh, What I love about coming on these shows and looking at these old games that I had way back when is seeing them with 2018 eyes and then remembering what my 1982 eyes were like. Because I'm just cranky old bastard now, and I'm in this point in my gaming life where I'm kind of sick of how everything is some kind of homogenized D20 variant. And I remember back in the day, every role-playing game practically had its own game engine. We were little kids then, and we just dug into them all and loved them all, and at that age, there couldn't be too much crunch. So I'm looking back on this in my 2018 eyes and going, oh, this is just a prototypical percentile skill-based system. This is just like Call of Cthulhu. At the time, that was a brand new game engine. I think we talked about on the uh, episode we did about the FASA Doctor Who game is yeah, share, right. shares a lot with that game and that stuff was revolutionary at the time. yeah oh, our little minds.
1: Percentile was the big deal back then and I think because we were all so used to doing the D&D, 3D6, 20-sided dice, blah 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 it's like, ooh, percentages and we can have skills with percentages and it's like, ah! Yeah, we just kind of leapt over to that like, this is so awesome and new and yeah, nowadays it's like, oh, yeah, know,
2: <laughs> it's a lot of the, the charm of that era that I'd like to see come back. You know, we're bringing back all this old school sensibilities, but I'd like to see that people sitting down to do a new RPG and going, okay, what's the best game engine for this genre? And just inventing new stuff all the time. Yeah, before we get emails, I'm not ragging on D20. It's a fine game engine, and I use it all the time. I just (laughs) like to see some, some, you know, different and newer stuff.
3: Well, and something else you can say about the percentage system is that to a mundane, to someone who's not already gotten bit by the bug we've all been bit with, looking at something and saying, okay, I have a 55 percent chance of success or i need to roll 12 or less on 3d6 which one is more intuitive to the non gamer.
2: That's hmm. a good point. Percentages Very are true. just obvious. As okay. anti Gygaxian as that can be, you know, without your fancy <laughs> bell curves and charts and graphs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Although, even your percentage based games, they do all, to some extent or another, manage to move into heavy math and bog down in, okay, in order to do this, you have to roll this, and the game master rolls this, and then you average the two, and then you divide by five, and then you do this. So it seems like even when a game is trying to make something straightforward for a new person. Some kind of, gosh, power creep is not what I want to say, but my, my brain is is flaking on this one. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs>
2: yeah, you only drove four or five hours today. That's Yeah. All.
1: <laughs> I'm not at my best today.
2: The thing you're talking about has is, is been there from the beginning. Yeah, complexity about like
1: a, the, creeps in, no matter what, it's somewhere rules, along the line.
2: The <laughs> tension between Rules Light and Rules Crunch has been there from the very beginning, although a lot of times we act like it's a new thing. (laughs)
1: No. <laughs> well, Jeff, what's your number four?
3: Um, well, at the risk of stealing something Jim wanted to bring up, the John M. Ford Klingons. I thought their Klingon culture was brilliant, the way it was written, and it's actually snuck into Discovery. Oh, uh, there, cool. there was a concept that was introduced in the novel, The Final Reflection, which is where Fossa pulled a lot of their Klingon culture from, called the Black Fleet. It's kind of like Valhalla. You're a Klingon, you're a warrior, you die honorably, you join the Black Fleet. In the very first episode of Discovery, Discovery. They mentioned the black fleet, and my blood ran cold. I was like, "Holy crap, that's a Fossa Trek reference!" Mm. <laughs> and, well, uh,
2: plus there's a fusion Klingon walking around as a main mem- main cast member of the show.
3: Yeah, that's very true. Ah, I didn't even think about that. You're right. <laughs> that that lends credence to the entire Fusion Klingon. Wow, you just blew my mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, the, the whole Klingon culture that they came up with, that makes a lot more sense in a way than what we got in TNG and DS9 and Voyager, which, if you look at it with too close a lens, it's a little unsustainable. Like, if the only valid path in life is that of the warrior, then where do their doctors and lawyers and everything else come from? You know, they kind of address that in an episode of Enterprise, but every time I bring that up, people go, Nobody watched Enterprise, but, uh, but yeah, I really, I, I liked their take on the culture of the Klingons. I thought it was awesome.
2: If ever you were on a podcast with co-host among whom you did not have to apologize for watching every single episode of every iteration of Star Trek, you're there. <laughs>
3: Every episode, yeah. even season one of TNG.
1: <laughs> I, I I watched Next Gen faithfully when it came out. I remember at the time I was just so excited that Star Trek is back on television. It's like I would have watched anything That's at that true. point, and mm-hmm. I, I watched it all.
2: <laughs> oh, I've got a best friend from high school, and he's the only guy I will chat about Discovery with because I just don't want to hear all the nonsense on social media. But I'm given <laughs> I'm given to discovery a hard way to go and he that's that's his refrain constant refrain is remember first season next gen and i'm and i go back to being you know in my mid-20s and saying oh that's right we did watch it and we're crazy about it and it did kind of suck in lots of places
1: (laughs) i would have and i did forgive anything because i was just so happy to have star trek back on tv (laughs) i watched every episode of next gen even first season did not matter it's like yes star trek is back
3: (laughs) yeah i rewatched first season Just as brain candy, there is only one episode that I always skip, and it's not the one everyone talks about. It's not Code of Honor. That one I will watch. It's Justice. I cannot watch the We're Going to Kill Wesley Crusher for Stepping in a Flower Bed episode. I just can't.
2: (laughs) While we all parade around in costumes on this planet, hand-designed by Gene Roddenberry.
3: Right.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, my number four, I'm going to talk about there's one point in the rules— where they talk about what they call opportunity actions, very much like what we call attacks of opportunity in some of the current D&D iterations now, but free actions a player can have their character take, depending on what happens during a turn. However, it's still based on getting a little bit into how things work as far as movements and turns and everything. A character in the Star Trek Fossa game can only do so many actions as they have action points, and if I am recalling correctly, you know, your action points are based on, I believe it's your dexterity score and some other things. So not everyone's going to have the same number of action points as, you know, another character would have. So depending on what happens during a turn, things that, you know, opposite characters and NPCs do, you could have the opportunity to take an opportunity action, but you can only do it if you have sufficient action points remaining after... What you did during your normal turn to do the action that you want. And I think this is one of the things where something that's simple was made perhaps needlessly complex by the addition of action points, especially when you have to use action points to say, okay, I am erect, but now I want to go down to one knee. And I have to use an action point to do that. That gets a little too crunchy for my personal tastes. But anyway, opportunity actions. That's mine.
0: I'm terribly crunchy. <laughs> The APs alone, I could go on about, but yeah, I never use APs when I play. Actually, I don't know if Jeff,
2: do you still use APs? Not really. No. Yeah, it, that it, be it's interesting kind of
1: to see how many people actually use the action point system.
2: So there you go. We just threw that in the same <laughs> box as uh, the DMG's <laughs> initiative order that nobody ever ran in AD&D.
1: Well,
0: it's a good idea, but it's way too crunchy. I mean, it is terribly crunchy. The idea is kind of cool. Like if you have ten seconds to do stuff, you you could divide that up in ten. seconds. Seconds, but everybody has different seconds, and yeah, each maneuver, which, like she said, was kneeling and standing and laying down, and uh, like everything was a point. And like, oh my gosh, you kidding?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's weird how this ties back to what Liz was talking about before: rules light versus rules crunch. Because this is a game design tension here. You know, because what's the first job of a game designer is to figure out rules to simulate things correctly right so you get carried away with that and forget sometimes that it's supposed to be a fun game that's easy to play so like those action points sound like my experience in those games is they only ever backfire on the pcs
1: well i think at least as far as a lot of these games go star trek was created you don't have a single author behind the rules Mm. this was a group of people who all collaborated and made a rule set. And so I think you have, you probably had people that were on the team who were going for a simple streamlined thing. And then you had other people on the team who's like, yes, let's have all the math. I love this. (laughs) And so you wind up with bits of one and bits of the other. And it's like, this doesn't seem to go together in some ways.
2: (laughs) I bet Jeffrey knows the answer to this. Wasn't the deal, when they got this license, wasn't the fastest deal that they held some kind of design competition and took submissions for basic game design. And the guys that ended up writing it, I think they were called, it's hard to say, Fantastic Fanta Simulations, Simulations. Yeah. Associates. Yeah. They were like the so called yeah. winners.
3: But yes, Fantastic Fanta Simulation Associates were the guys that wrote the game engine Guy, Guy McLemore, uh, Greg Poline, and Dave Teppel. I think. And if I if I recall, it's, it's like what you guys said about the Doctor Who RPG. It's almost the same engine.
0: Well, they wrote Gravball or, or something like that. They did one game before this.
3: Mm-hmm. And, and they did quite a bit of stuff afterwards. I know McLemore and Poline worked on uh, Mektun Empire, which one of my friends described as the finest bathroom reading and role-playing. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's a great little book. I mean, it's got awesome little adventure seeds and, and things in it. And then they went out and created their own system a few years ago called Simply Roleplaying. I don't know if you guys ever saw that, but it was it was kind of neat. It's not ringing a bell. No, no. It was it was during the the boom when PDF publication was first starting to be a thing, like when Drive Through first started doing business. They wrote this whole simple game system and published a whole bunch of cardstock characters and buildings. I mean, they they've got a whole range of them,
2: but th- that's what they were up to these days.
1: Interesting. All right, Corbett, what is your number three? I'm
2: so glad you're keeping count and track.
1: I've got a little notepad and I'm making marks next to everybody's name so
2: (laughs) all right well since we're beefing about
0: the game let let me throw out psionics are really not good (laughs) <laughs> the, the the whole Spock nerve pinch thing sounds really simple and straightforward on paper. Vulcan walks up behind you, pinch, and you're out. But uh, in the numbers, if for one thing, it's based off of your size score, Spock's size score is 97. Or if you're going by percentages, 97%. Which means if you are a Vulcan, walk up behind him and give him the pinch, or if you're trained with the pinch, you only have a 3% chance of actually knocking him out. It'd be better just to punch him in the back of the head. And, you know, That's a different percentage anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think they really did not want to use psionics but they felt they had to because Vulcans had these abilities but yeah I get the feeling that they really would have preferred not to have rules for them in the first place
0: yeah, I could agree <laughs> I get the point I understand the story concept of oh I can knock a character out with this one touch attack and that's all you have to do is make it a touch attack and it would have been simpler and it's usually what I do is just have them do the touch attack But the... well
1: they make it so difficult for yeah. any non-Vulcan to even have enough of a psionics rating to do anything in the first place. Uh, they don't want any other race to be able to do anything. and then when they finally talk about psionics at all, which is sort of buried in the back of the <laughs> of the book, you know you've got like one paragraph and most of it is you need to keep psionics use restricted for game balance. Don't let psionics dominate the game. There is no way all caps. That psionics can be used during combat. It's like so we have psionics, but you can almost never use them. <laughs> yeah.
2: They make it they make it awkward. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> Number three. That was
1: Number me. three. <laughs> what about you, Jim?
2: So it doesn't matter what game it is, psionics just sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
1: Nobody likes it. <laughs> My
2: number three is, I'm going to defend the game a little bit because I imagine uh, hopefully people listening to this who have never experienced the game will get interested enough to hop on eBay and grab themselves a set. And I'm going to talk about, at the time, why I bought the game. It's exactly like Cubicle 7's Doctor Who game that they publish currently. It's a set of lavish books, really well-researched, lavishly illustrated with lots of stills from the show, and that's the only reason I've bought every single one of those really expensive books, because I'm a Doctor Who fan, and I want the background information on the show and all the pretty pictures. It's a storytelling game, and I don't enjoy those, so I would probably never, ever run or play the game. Unless it was you guys, and you said, hey, we're running it, let's play. <laughs> and that was why I got this game back in the day. And if you've run out, if you've never seen it, you run out now, you're going to flip through the books and go, well, this is just columns of type and bunches of pictures from the uh, original series. Well, that was internet gold back when there wasn't any internet to us. It was like Stephen Whitefield's The Making of Star Trek book, Half the reason to buy that book is all the pictures Paramount supplied to the author for the book and for this game. Because they're just, it's barely illustrated with charts and maps by FASA, but it's throughout lavishly populated with these pictures. And they're not just recognizable stills from the show and publicity shots. Some of it is stuff that, you know, are like prop shots that somebody back in the day in the 60s, Garrett Wang or whoever, took pictures of a tricorder or instrument panel and paramount had the pictures and apparently gave them to fasa to put in this game and at the time that was just half the reason to get it for me
0: they, they kind of got in trouble for that too because they made they made whole new things and put them in and let it go which everybody accepted that's how scotty's what was it scotty's uh engineering guide came out totally separate from fasa but they copied all the stuff from fasa which FASA <laughs> was guessing from the novels <laughs> I imagine
2: Jeffrey can speak better to it than I can, but it was what was so wonderful then because we had the original series and the movies just coming out, and like in '82, that's just the motion picture, and nobody wanted anything from the motion picture. Pajama tops, yay! (laughs) I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but all the background, okay, this is how a medical tricorder, this is what it does, and all that stuff, along with the Klingons and all the background stuff that they either... Fandom was like that then. That's why Luzacchi thought he could just stick Franz Joseph's art in his game the first run and not pay anybody, because it was just a thing in Star Trek fandom then of everybody shared everything. Well,
1: mm-hmm. I know there were some Star Trek novels back in the day that I read, and the author's took stuff, whole cloth, from the Scotty's Engineering Guide, you know, the technical manuals, etc., you know, from the games and put them into their Star Trek novels for the way things work, ship designs, etc. It's like, ah, that's from the manual, you know, Mm. (laughs) so... Yeah, that some of that made it into canon, quote-unquote, novels back then. There's a couple, I, uh, Diane Carey, I think, was the author. There was Battle Stations and Dreadnought. Oh, um, yeah. And those definitely, I remember, took stuff from the technical manuals when she was making descriptions of, of some of the stuff going on in those. It's like, yeah.
2: <laughs> and and to, and to square the circle all the way around, that's what made me laugh out loud when I saw the transporter room on the Discovery, because that's the transporter room Gold Key Comics put in Star Trek. Their transporter room didn't look remotely like the TV show set. It was big mm-hmm. with these giant dishes. And then those guys decided to put that in Discovery. And I'm just like, wah, that's awesome.
1: <laughs> all right, Jeff, what's your number three? Well, one of the things
3: that uh, I loved in addition to the Klingons is the fact that Fossa was not afraid to explore life outside of Starfleet, which is something we never really saw at that point yet. They had a whole supplement with a picture of Corbett on the front, or just his mustache. Um, (laughs) Trader Captains captains and Merchant Princes, and it gave you this whole other thing you could do in the Star Trek universe. You could now basically play Traveler in Star Trek. You could become a merchant and move cargo, and they had a really interesting idea, which I guess that's the heart of, of my number three, the triangle. They reasoned that since the Federation shared a border with the Klingons, and they shared a border with the Romulans, And thanks to the Romulan model getting lost and them having these Klingon ships in the episode, the Enterprise incident, we know the Klingons and the Romulans had to be trading. So they reasoned that there was an area of space where all three borders met and there was this lawless zone where stuff happened. And that was the triangle. I have set so many campaigns in there. It's not fun.
2: Um, A special sector of space to go hairy, mudded up.
3: Exactly. And there's a whole, there's a whole source book for that too. There is a triangle source book and a triangle campaign. I love the way Fossa just kind of gave you some other options for doing Star Trek-y stuff without being in Starfleet. I thought that was pretty cool.
1: I guess kind of jumping off from that and the Traveler analogy, (laughs) I guess my number three, the way that they have you create your characters, it has a lot in common with Traveler. So, such as rolling to see what tour assignments your character has in their past. Naturally, you don't die during character generation like you do in Traveler. Some people will see that as a bonus, others will see that as a detriment, depending on where you're coming from. But um, your number of tours, that's determined by a random D10 roll, modified by your intelligence and your luck attributes. However, unlike Traveler, your character generation, you pretty much know what you're going to be at the end of it all. The GM tells You, okay, this is the ship that you guys are all going to be serving on, and so these are the positions that are available. What positions do you all want to fill on this ship? So you're going into the game even before you've made your character, for instance, knowing I'm going to be the science officer on this ship. While you've got the randomization in your previous tour assignments, the very last previous assignment prior to when this game starts is not really all that random because no matter what, it's going to be something that leads into your now being the science officer on this ship. I'm not sure how I feel about that. On the one hand, it's good to know what you're going to be to start off with. On the other hand, I kind of liked the whole idea when you were doing it in Traveler, you had no idea what kind of character you were going to wind up with at the end of the day. It's like it could be something that was just completely opposite of what you were hoping for. And yeah, you're still able to make it work. Like I said, I'm not sure how I feel about it.
2: I can feel the ambivalence.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's good points to it. I mean, as far as a lot of games, you know, you're coming up with characters and there's always that one person who deliberately makes up a character that's not going to fit in with the rest of the group. And, then the, G- and then the GM has to do mental gymnastics to somehow force that character into the narrative along with everyone else. It's like, I'm low assassin who hates everybody and I would never ever ever talk to any of you in this tavern so <laughs> how are you going to get me into the game huh 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 you know, <laughs> it's like, you, it keeps that from happening but on the other hand it seems like that there's a little less of I don't know <laughs>
0: well think of it like D&D you know you go in and say I want to be the healer or the the fireball shooting guy or whatever it is granted you can make anything you want in D&D, and you could do it in Star Trek. I I don't know, I've run games where everybody's just like a bunch of lowly, like low-level ensigns, long before uh, uh, what was the episode? Below Decks? Or, no... uh, Lower Decks. Lower Decks, thank you.
2: I love the nerd fights over which is better Star Trek or Star Wars right like you know clearly you know Enterprise versus a Star Destroyer I'm sorry only one of them has a weapon that travels faster than light so you know a couple of photon torpedoes and the Star Destroyer is done in and out but this is one of the rare cases where Star Wars is the superior RPG product almost by design because you're licensing a a genre property that lends itself to the D&D dynamic in the case of Star Wars, better. You can be a bunch of pirates on a pirate ship and go blast through Star Wars and tear it up, and, okay, you've got a Jedi student on board. Star Trek and Doctor Who have the problem of, okay, who's going to be the captain? Okay, who's going to be the, a time lord? Well,
0: there's ways to mechanically <laughs> jump around that, and the expansions did make it easier to do stuff beyond that scope, but, yeah, you're right. <laughs>
2: Out of well, the I'm not saying it can't be fun. It's just a problem that has to be addressed in the rules at some point, and, and that's what Liz was talking about, right? Well, I want to play yes. a science officer. How do I do this? That. Well, here are the rules for that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you know you're going to be the science officer. So even if every previous tour of duty that you rolled has nothing whatsoever to do with being a science officer, then that final role is on a separate table that kind of shoehorns you into what you're going to be in the starting campaign. So it's like, eh. I mean, Jeff was just yeah.
2: talking to us about the mighty campaigns he's wrought from the little triangle area where you can you don't have to be a Starfleet goon. You can just go tear it up. Goon? They're the good
1: guys. Come on, man. No, no, you're thinking of the Gorns.
2: <laughs> yeah, Starfleet Gorn.
1: <laughs>
2: I stand corrected.
3: With uh, what Liz was saying about, you know, you could roll all these different tours of duty that don't have anything to do with what you eventually fall in with. We actually kind of flipped that on its ear with one game. We had one young lady who was not quite as martially oriented as the rest of the players, so she made this really awesome science officer, but they were all On a destroyer that was basically assigned to picket duty along the Klingon border and we had a lot of fun with initially she's like, I'm a science officer what do you want me to do here? Well, man the sensors and tell us if there's anything out there and eventually the crew got to respect her skills and she got to kind of respect the Starfleet jarheads she was stuck on a ship with (laughs) and it it was a fun little twist, but I I definitely see what you're saying, you know, you're making this guy that's supposed to be, if you look at the the skill rating descriptions, if you're above, what, an 80, you're a published author author in that skill you know you have a science officer with an astrophysics of 96 and he's stuck on a colonial operation ship that is kind of yeah i see what you're saying
1: it's like i'm a merchant marine over and over and over again it's like why
2: (laughs) and it's nothing that couldn't be fixed with you know gm fiat and you know the the group together but it shouldn't have to be fixed
3: right It can give you a or lot you can of come reasons. up with a really interesting reason why your published PhD in botany is in uh, what are one of the merchant <laughs> marine command
2: right Quad, Quadro <laughs> oh, no.
3: yeah.
0: yeah. Well, that's a flaw or a problem or yeah, it's character building. Go with it. (laughs) Actually, I will Um. throw this out as a quick reference for anybody who wants to tweak their campaign a lot, and I use it, like, it's one of my source books, Star Wars, or Star Trek wise. Dragon 150, there's an article by uh, John Terra called A a Final Frontier of Your Own, and basically he walks through, like, making your own campaign, who's going to be best at what roles, how to work around it. He does a much better job of working through the kind of how to shape your, your world for Star and it's free <laughs> that being said right liz you hate it maybe
1: <laughs> <laughs> i didn't say i hated it it's like, I'm not sure how I feel about it. It's like, there are some good things to it. But on the other hand, it feels like it takes away some of the spontaneity when you have that last bit that just sort of shoehorns you into this predetermined path that your GM gave you to begin with. So, eh. <laughs> can be good, can be bad. I'm ambivalent. <laughs> this is I can why I love you, see Liz. bad points.
2: This is exactly why we're friends, because you're using uh, reason and... And rationality to highlight a gray area that you're not sure about rather than going straight to a binary gamer knife fight over it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know how I feel about this. You know, maybe I could get into a mm. game with an awesome game master and they would be able to sell me on it. But I'm willing to be sold on it. I'm just not sure how I feel.
0: Well so. I'll bet one hundred quatloos on Liz. What do you <laughs> say, Jim? <laughs>
1: I bet 100 Kwatlu's that <laughs> it's your turn to uh, give us your number two, Corbett.
0: I know. Okay, my turn. Okay, this was one of the things that actually shaped me as a game master, or broke me as a game master, depending on how you look at it. Page 20 of the uh, operations manual. No, no, wait, the the GM's guide, the uh, game operations manual. Right, right, right. (laughs) Page 20, 21, they basically talk a lot about using miniatures, adding in props to the game, and then warning you, don't use too many. Yeah. (laughs) I ignored the warning. Don't use the props
1: as a crutch.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I ignored the warning, but at the time, they were probably talking more about the uh, Starfleet Battles miniatures, because those were out all over the place, and you could get your starships and go out and do little battles. The props and play acting, I use all the time in games where I, I, I want to get the characters to act, you know, to have that, that over-the-top, you know, it's e plebnista, these are words meant for people, not for just one person. You want to see that moment in the game. It's always fun when they just throw themselves into it. I always get excited.
2: How did we get this far into the episode without hearing your Bill Shatner? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd have thought that'd been like the first five minutes in. But I'm holding back. <laughs> well, don't hold back, Corbin.
0: No, but it's it was the it was the moment for me when I see people like really i guess shatner it up or throw out these over-the-top mm-hmm. speeches and like you're wrong your bible's a lie all this is a lie and that's very star trek for me those are the, the cowboy diplomacy moments where you throw caution to the wind and you you make it right no matter what and it's kind of cool
2: you gotta sleep with some green lady you gotta talk a computer into suicide and wreck a whole planet you don't care
1: <laughs>
2: all the check all the day's
1: work <laughs> Well, I imagine the point they were probably trying to make is, you know, don't depend so much on props that you're not paying sufficient attention to creating a good adventure. Too true, true. Um, which, which was probably what they were trying to get at. It's like, yeah, these are all great, but don't think that because you have all these great props that you can get away with just nothing <laughs> as far as a, a plot goes. Well, you know,
0: uh, in defense of that, I will say players who aren't as interested in the game play with the toys. And so they, they kind of are distracted by the shiny bits while I interact with the people who are interested so uh, it is a bit of a crutch yeah i'll admit that
1: jim number two
0: <laughs> hang on
2: here Oh, I hear... oh, crap. <laughs> as he's my...
1: playing with his toys <laughs> no, i was just
2: looking for corbett got me looking for what's around and reach at my desk and apparently my bluetooth communicator pin is out of juice so i wouldn't chirp. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> It's the most awesome Christmas present I ever got. Uh, what was I going to say? What are we doing? Number two? <laughs> number two. Um, as, I, as I reread through the rules, I was surprised to see the section that's also uh, right in front of what Corbett was talking about. Uh, In the very front of the game operations manual, there's a whole little introductory chapter called Designing Adventures. Oh, yeah. This this is like some sage freaking advice, particularly coming out of 1982, because most of it still applies. I mean, you know, linear encounters, sandbox advice, not just how to set it up in the Star Trek universe, but just good, basic, here's how you set these adventures up for your players. And with the goals, the stuff we talk about a lot on, on the show in the old days, you know, is it yeah. you know, between railroading somewhere between railroading and sandbox is the golden mean, right?
1: I was really impressed with all of the little articles that William John Wheeler wrote and were peppered throughout the books. I thought all of the stuff that he contributed that had his name on it is like, this is good. I like this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in the context of 1983, it was very foresightful advice. Because those are still the days where we were all figuring it out.
1: Ah, Jeff, what's your number two?
3: My number two is a prop by way of something Corbett was saying, but it's one that Fossa released for this game one of the worst parts of Star Trek. And I, I guess this this could go to other role-playing games, but it's it's terrible in Star Trek. Oh, you're I know exactly what officer. you're going to talk about. You're playing the science officer. The captain asks you, Mr. Spock, what's out there? So Spock turns to the GM, what's out there? The GM says, well, it's a class M planet with this sort of atmosphere. So then the Spock character has to turn around captain. It's a class M planet. So what FASA did to kind of help that a little bit, they released a Starship sensors and tricorder kit for the Star Trek role-playing game. And all the the GM basically takes this paper craft toy and sets up exactly what he wants the person running the sensors of the tricorder to see. And then when that moment comes and the captain says, scan it, Spock, what's out there? The GM just hands it to him. And then he can look at it and go, Captain, what we're seeing is this, this, and this, rather than the whole back and forth between the GM and the player, and then the player and the rest. Because I have some players that have this terrible habit. When they turn to the GM for information and the whole group hears it, instead of role-playing and presenting that information in character, they will go, blah. And that's supposed to represent their character regurgitating what the GM just told them. This cool little tool kind of helped circumvent that. And I thought it was one of the most brilliant things Fasa could have done to help with the... What was Sigourney Weaver's character in Galaxy Quest? Gwen? Gwen DeMarco? My only job is repeating the GM!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Dude, that's gold. And you're exactly you're right. It's been noted that I have a propensity to, when a player learns information only they have, to say, you're with me, and walk away from the table a good 12 feet, or go out step outside and tell them information, because I want the Chinese whispers version of what they said to go to the players, not what I say. I'd forgotten all about that thing until you started talking about it. I'm like,
3: oh, I, I always wanted that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty cool. It's fiddly. It, it requires you to kind of think about it ahead of time, because if you're trying to set it up while you're running the game, it it's a little fiddly but it's nice to have. It looks pretty badass.
0: Yeah, it's kind of cool. Actually, have you ever used it and accidentally, like, set it wrong and give it to them, and it's, like, the wrong setting, but then they go with it, and that's the... Not that I'll admit. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I've had... That that, has happened. Yeah, it's happened to me a few times, too. It makes for an interesting new game that changes total different directions sometimes. You know, Corbett, now you're making me want to just spin the dials on it, hand it to a
3: player, and see where the adventure goes.
0: (laughs) That could be totally awesome. (laughs) That's like a...
1: Never the same game twice.
2: It's like the old trick where the players go for a beeline to the one door you haven't mapped anything behind yet so you just keep them out you try and keep them out and they become more and more convinced that there's something they need behind the door so if you're smart dm you just you just sit back and listen to them speculate and pick the best idea and that's (laughs) what's behind the door now
1: (laughs) or just let them open it it's like it's a closet (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. my number two there is a fairly extensive section, which I enjoyed in the game operations manual, all about designing alien creatures. And you're not just designing the aliens, but you are also designing their civilization, their tech level, everything. It goes into a lot more detail than, say, the Traveler version of designing aliens, I thought. And I never thought I would say that about a game, that it goes into more detail than Traveler does. But I think in this instance, the star trek alien creature slash world slash civilization set of charts and rolls and tables and things you know you can you can get a pretty concise snapshot of a brand new alien race and how they live using those things. So I was pretty impressed with that.
2: That's like one of those things that's worth stealing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, whatever game you're running, you could steal mm-hmm. that. The Starfinder guys should have tried that. <laughs> oh! Oh, dear. Sorry. <laughs> There's an email.
1: <laughs> the opinions of DM Jim are not necessarily the opinions <laughs> of Save for Half podcast.
2: <laughs> it's just, my caffeine's wearing off. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, Well, moving right along then. (laughs) Corbett, what's your number one?
0: While reading through this, I had an idea. (laughs) Kind of an interesting idea based off of the original Trek and kind of loosely rethought everything because they go through how to calculate your star date, which is more or less, it's arbitrary. Do whatever you want because in the original Trek, Shatner'd come out and like, okay, Captain's Log 71258, whatever, and just throw some numbers out. (laughs) And they were always in exactly, not exactly in the right order, and they weren't exactly set right because script writers write whatever they want. <laughs> but when Next Gen started, they started keeping a, a log date and everything had a certain set number. It wasn't always totally right, but it was always following a pattern. And mm-hmm. I thought about it. The, the start date can be set on any ship. And more than likely, each ship could have its own start date based off of when its launch time was, which would mean that your start date could be a countdown to the end of your mission. Mission, 'Cause everything was set to five year missions or twenty year missions. So it could be the day count based on how far along you are on the mission or how many you have left in the mission. So
2: mm. Oh, that way lies madness, man.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I wasted time on dates.
2: <laughs> no, you got my whole brain spun up now trying to never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm like, okay, with time dilation, are
0: Well, no, it just made sense. Like, okay, you have a five-year mission, so your start date would start at either zero or 999.99 or whatever, and you would start counting down, so that way you would know, like, this is the second day of our mission, so off we go. It would make kind of sense for a military operation, I would think, because I noticed they Don't made... use the M word, Corbett. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm just messing with you. An exploratory <laughs> mission? <laughs>
3: <laughs> we are a peacekeeping armada. We wear uniforms and carry weapons, but we are in no way the military.
2: What's that half ass explanation he tries to give in uh, Journey to Babel? We're an instrument of science and exploration. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. He's trying to sweet talk Spock's mom. Uh huh. <laughs> Come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. <laughs>
1: Where the standard is like, we are here to defend democracy, not practice it.
2: <laughs> we're an advanced 24th century culture that's done away with money and all human needs. But we're also a drama on network TV, so sorry about this. Bang.
1: <laughs> yeah, I admit, I would be one of those people who would just randomly make up Star Date numbers. <laughs> no,
0: it's it's a, it's totally fine. And they actually, say it in the book, you make them up. It's okay. Like, that's what they did. Eh. <laughs> It just made me think
1: about
3: Before, it. You know, in TNG, how they get the the first two numbers of the start date, right? It
0: was forties, right? They're in the forties. I know. It that.
3: was supposed to be four for the twenty fourth century and one for the first season. Not <laughs> anticipating that the show would, through DS nine and Voyager, continue past four nine something.
0: <laughs>
1: Shocking.
2: So they just rolled it over and went, yeah, okay. It's a number. Best laid, best laid plans <laughs> of tribbles and men.
1: It's like, well, the first series only. Last- lasted for four seasons so (laughs) how could this possibly go on more than that All right, the... Jim, what's your number one?
2: Oh, lord. I, I ran out a long time ago, and I had seven to start with, so uh, I'm going to say that my uh, number one is I'm just uh, happy and grateful that we have experts and adherents of this game, like Mr. Jeffrey Webb, who could come on here and keep us straight. Because we've <laughs> we've never let a lack of expertise stop us in this podcast, but it's nice to have somebody around that knows what they're talking about.
1: Indeed. <laughs> here, <Thanks>. here. Yes. <laughs>
0: Thank you for sacrificing your childhood so we can Enjoy this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed.
1: All right. Well, I'm, then, Jeff. I'm,
2: I'm all done
0: sucking up.
1: That's it. <laughs> Woohoo! Okay then, Jeff. What's your number one?
3: So, my number one is going to surprise everyone by being something that's in the box set, actually. So, uh, being forewarned <laughs> by Corbett that I had to be careful not to get my stuff stolen, I, I looked at a lot of supplements for this game for my for my other ones. But, my number one favorite thing about this is something that was included in the deluxe box set. There were two box sets for the second edition of the game. One just came with the three books we've been talking about, but the second version came with the Starship Combat game and sets of deck plants for the Enterprise and a Klingon D7. But the cool part about that box set was the way they integrated Starship Combat with your role-playing characters. There were consoles that were uh, printed on almost blueprint paper, one for the engineer, one for the science officer, one for the helmsman, and everybody yeah, had a job. Yeah, mm-hmm. so, so everybody had something to do when the ship was in combat, and it wasn't just the captain making rolls and everybody else twiddling their thumb, mm-hmm. and I thought, man, that's brilliant. That's very, very cool because it gave everybody something to do when the ship was fighting. And like, even I think there was even little things that the chief medical officer, you know, could roll to to help with casualties and things like that. It was its own mini game that everyone could take part in as long as they were in one of the the major roles, you know, in the crew. And that I've was my absolute about favorite. Those. That was that's my crazy, absolute cause...
2: favorite part. <laughs> That's how the Star Trek VR game works right now, in 2018. It, yeah.
3: There's also a, a game called Artemis, that sort of Star Trek with the serial numbers filed off that, that you can download and play on network computers. And that, to me, this was as close as we could get in 1986, 87, when I was heavily running this, to LARPing. It was it was kind of a, an early Star Trek, you know, I have my computer in front of me LARP game. And man, we had so much fun with that. Mm-hmm. It was awesome.
1: All right. Let's see. I guess I'm going to um, say for my number one, one of the things that kind of struck me as I was looking through through the rules were when we got to the skills and the skill descriptions, I swear I had a TSR top secret flashback. (laughs) <laughs> Especially, right? yeah, it's like, administration, what? And then, you know, going on, he's like, oh, and weapon use and land vehicle. And it's like, oh my <laughs> god, it, it's like the skills list from Top Secret, mm. only it's more science fiction-y. <laughs> it gave me a warm, fuzzy sort of feeling, which was probably not their intention at all. But, you know, because I made that connection of a game that I'd owned since I was 12 or so, it's like, oh my gosh, this podcast is so familiar to me for this reason, and it's probably at least partially because it's all percentile. Top Secret was percentile. A lot of the crunchier games of the time tended toward the percentile system, but just the way it was formatted and typeset and the skills themselves, it made me think of Top Secret, and it made me feel good.
2: It's kind of part of that whole thing where the Federation is kind of the, here, hold our beer. We got this organization. You know, whatever skill you need, you got it there somewhere.
1: Yeah. And then going into the game operations manual, they have the skills listed there, too. And at first, I'm like, wait a minute. Are they just padding out this book by repeating what's already in the officer's manual? You know, it's like, no, not exactly. Because in the game operations manual, when they're listing the skills, they're talking about how the GM should do a check utilizing those skills, giving you examples. Oh, yeah. It's like, well, if if you're going to do an administration skill, you're going to average this skill with, you know, a specific attribute score, or if you're going to do a skill check for this, you average this skill with another skill rating if they have this in addition. So I thought that was pretty neat, giving the GM, here's when and where and how you might want to do skill checks with These particular skills when you're running the game. And I'm I don't recall really seeing that kind of helpfulness in other skill-based games for a GM. This is where you might want to do this kind of skill check. This is how you might want to do this kind of skill check. Here's some ideas. So I really liked that. Okay. What makes the save And what is going to take of? Okay, well, now it is time for what we thought made the save and what didn't make the save. Corbett, what made the save?
0: You know, it's just Star Trek. So, for me, it was Star Trek goodness and fun. I mean, all around, anything rules-wise, I could always tweak and adjust, and I pretty much always do. So, uh... Star Trek goodness. Didn't make the save. <laughs> I can tell you right now my rule books haven't made the save. I was looking through them and realized there was a brownish color right along the edge it's from the, the staples <laughs> rusting. <sighs> but uh no no, seriously um you know I think what didn't make the save, and I know it's popular as far as the percentage based system but i I think this I, I always tweak it down and turn it into a D10 because it's easier to play uh, and not that not that I just hate percentages, but I, it's so much easier just like just roll one dice, it's one to ten. whatever it is it's it's that number up and just use the first number instead of the two numbers together. So that's that's kind of my—didn't quite make the save. I didn't really keep the percentage system around. I haven't used it that much in probably 10 years or so. So, sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't apologize. <laughs> Jim, what about you?
2: I was not prepared for this because you started doing this after I left the podcast. So let's see what I can come up with. Uh, what made the save was the well-written, straightforward rules that are typeset in nice— Justified columns, and I can still read today without my reading glasses. What didn't make the save is the exact same thing in the brand new Star Trek game that's sitting on game store shelves right now that is a bunch of funny science fiction font type in white against a black background. It's Mm. beautiful, it's gorgeous, it's laid out like an art book, and I can't read it. I get
0: what you're saying there, actually.
1: Uh, well, I know Mike always has problems with the really super artistic header fonts that people like to use because his screen reader will not recognize the characters half the time, and so it doesn't know what it's reading on headings that are in just these wild fonts. Visually, they look awesome, but they don't do any favors to someone who is needing to utilize a screen reader to figure out what's going on. Oh, Jeff, what about you? In your opinion, what makes the save and what doesn't make the save in this game?
3: Well, what makes the save for me is, as much as I referenced stuff that comes separate from the box set, the box set itself, I am a huge fan of the box set era. You have this beautifully illustrated box, and inside there are the three books with everything you need to run years worth of Star Trek, and to me, being able to have years and years worth of, it, of, of adventure in one little box, that's where it's at for me. I don't need a 385 page rule book. I want something that I can I can have hold in one hand and say, this, this is the game, let's go. Fossa did a great job of putting a ton of awesome stuff inside that box. That's what makes the save for me. I also have to second what Jim said. It's readable, it's awesome, the new game is beautiful, and I cannot read it either. So um, I've played it, and it's it's fun, but it is very difficult to read that book. Um, <laughs> what failed the save for me, I gotta go back to Action Points. It's a great idea, it's a really neat idea, it's just too wargaming for Star Trek. Mm. It's, it's a little too complicated for Star Trek, because you'll get into arguments, you know, about, like, initiative. Do I spend all my action points at once? Or if I'm doing something that only takes one action point and that Klingon over there is doing something that takes four, who goes first?
1: And shouldn't I be done before he is, you know? <laughs> right.
3: And so we've we've gotten into many arguments about how that should be implemented. And so, yeah, we just kind of brush action points under the thing and do something, you know, just whatever feels right at, at the time. Maybe a move action and a skill action or something like that. But I see where they were going but it doesn't survive contact with the game tip. Right, right on.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, for me, I think what makes the save, and this was something that Jim has already mentioned and I kind of agreed with earlier, William John Wheeler's article on Designing Adventures. And as I said, just about everything that he wrote and inserted into the game, I think his bits were among the very best parts of what you had in the rules. I was super impressed with all of the stuff that had his name on it that I read as I was going through the books. What didn't make the save? Yeah, for the most part, these books were very easy to read with two notable exceptions. The table of contents in the game operations manual.
0: The teeny tiny print? (laughs)
1: Yes! (laughs) And! The character generation short form, which also had teeny tiny print in the Starfleet officers manual. It's like this is like three or four point font size. I don't think I could have read this when I was 20 years old as let alone reading it now. It's like I was going through this I had my reading glasses on and I'm still squinting at those two pages. It's like what what is this?
2: Oh. This
1: is useful for anyone.
2: <laughs> I'm so happy. I had forgotten this podcast was like this, where the two layout hosts just lay down the law. I love it. <laughs> ah!
1: <laughs> yeah, those two particular pages did not make the save. And I got to ask if you have to condense your font size to four point, to make the character generation short form all fit onto a single page. How short is it really? <laughs> I don't think it's that short. Oh, it was
2: 1983. They would have to go to the typesetter and change the ball.
1: Yeah. Ah. William John Wheeler is awesome. Four-point font is not awesome.
2: <laughs> I'm over here
3: making notes because I'm taking desktop publishing right now. So.
0: <laughs> I am surprised. Neither it took you this long to mention the small font. I figured that would be like your number one go-to. E- either either of you two, really.
1: I was saving that for doesn't make the save. It's oh. like, please, you know. And I'm thinking Jim is going to talk about this. I'm going to lose it if I.
2: <laughs> I almost did, but good thing I didn't.
1: Well, thank you, everyone, for being on the show. Especially you two, Jim and Jeff. We appreciate you joining us especially since mike couldn't make it (laughs) normally he'd be the one doing all this and he probably is almost certainly far more familiar with the Fossa Star Trek game than I am because it was his box set he ran it for many years before we even got together and it's like I don't know much of anything about this game other than the couple of times that I've played it and reading over the rules so (laughs) I'm glad that you were here Jeff because I'm glad that we had somebody who had a lot of experience running the game and being able to fill that niche that normally I I'd be depending on Mike to to handle.
3: <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I love Fossa Trek. Played a lot of it. So it was fun to, to come on and talk about
2: it. I'm super excited just to get to meet you, even though you've been at my game table. You were I was busy trying to kill you and you were busy trying not to get killed. <laughs> right. So, right. And also because now that we've had you in the show, maybe Corbett'll shut up about it.
0: <laughs> uh, right.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll see everybody at North Texas, Yay! so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's my favorite con of all time.
1: All right, well, I think that's all we have for this episode, and so it's time for us to say farewell. <laughs> Good night, everybody.
0: Good night, everybody. For to beam up. <laughs> Good one. Good night, everyone.
1: All right, and we are out.
2: is a production of the Mutt Games Network and the Gagman Podcast. The Save for Half theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com All player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Half.
0: You had your own door problems.
1: Talking doors, doors falling on top of me and nearly killing me, all kinds of things. Just want to say my DM Chase is sometimes a bastard. <laughs> but I mean that in a very loving and affectionate way. <laughs>